This episode of the Windows Into the Bible podcast is brought to you by Windows Into the Bible University, the best way for you to continue studying and learning about the words of the Bible through the world of the Bible. With affordable monthly and annual membership plans, in addition to some incredible free courses and materials, Windows Into the Bible University is a resource like nothing that's out there. Courses are available online, on demand, with video and audio lessons, so there's no such thing as falling behind. You decide the pace you learn at, and we provide you with everything you need to study your Bible like never before. Some of our most popular courses include What is the Bible? Windows into the Bible, the theology of Jesus, and much more. These courses are expert-led with college-level learning and materials at a fraction of the college cost. We guarantee you'll never look at the Bible the same again. Enroll today at WITBUniversity.com. That's WITBUniversity.com. Listening to the Windows into the Bible podcast with Mark Turnage. Reading the Bible with understanding requires reading the words of the Bible within the world of the Bible. This podcast engages the spatial, historical, cultural, and spiritual world of the Bible to help transform how you read and understand the Bible. Have questions or want to interact with Mark? Tweet us using the hashtag WITBQuestions or email them to questions at WITBpodcast.com. For more insights, information about the podcast, and bonus resources and notes for each episode, visit WITBpodcast.com. Now, let's get into today's episode. If I asked you, what is the most important chapter within the New Testament? outside of the Gospels, what would you say? Is it in Romans? Maybe chapter 8? No. Or maybe Galatians? No. The chapter that defined the course for much of the New Testament, which addressed the social challenges faced by Jesus' movement and was still being addressed by John in Revelation at the end of the first century, was Acts 15. What makes this chapter so significant. Hi, I'm Mark. Do you ever feel confused when you read the Bible? Do you feel like you're missing things that the author intended for you to understand? Would you like to gain clarity and confidence in reading the Bible? Welcome to the Windows into the Bible podcast, where we use the world of the Bible to help you understand the words of the Bible. At the outset, we need to be clear. Jesus' movement in the first century was Jewish. It was Jewish in piety and faith, practice and theology. Yes, it was a messianic redemptive movement within Judaism, but it was Jewish. The majority of his followers were Jewish. Internally, they identified themselves in this manner. And from all indications within the New Testament, Jews who were not part of his movement also identified them as a Jewish movement. Remember, there's nothing non-Jewish about identifying a figure as God's anointed, 
it's a thoroughly Jewish hope. Because his movement was Jewish in every way, Jesus's followers processed, interacted, and dealt with issues that arose like ancient Jews. We find evidence within Jesus's movement of differences of opinion on certain issues, like the question of the inclusion of Gentiles, non-Jews, into Jesus's movement. These questions arose in part because ancient Judaism wrestled with them as well, and the solutions offered align with the differences of opinion found within various Jewish circles. That brings us to Acts 15. The setting of this chapter and the eventual conference and decree that came from it happened because Jews from Judea came to Antioch in Syria, where Paul and Barnabas were based teaching that unless Gentiles were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, they could not be safe. Paul and Barnabas refuted such teaching, claiming that Gentiles did not need to be circumcised, but were acceptable to God as Gentiles. The community in Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem to inquire of the elders there and receive their decision on this issue. Luke includes an interesting verse at this point in his story, quote, And some from the party of the Pharisees who were believers stood up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and charge them to keep the law of Moses, unquote. Pharisees who belonged to the followers of Jesus. Being Pharisees did not exclude them from identifying as Jesus' followers, something Paul himself does later in the book of Acts. And being believers did not exclude them from being Pharisees, a point which underscores our previous statement that Jesus' followers were primarily Jews in every way. Gentile attraction to Judaism was acknowledged by Jewish, Greek, and Latin authors. The first century Jewish historian Josephus states, quote, From the Greeks we are severed more by our geographical position than by our institutions, with the result that we neither hate nor envy them. On the contrary, many of them have agreed to adopt, the Greek term here literally means to enter, our laws, of whom some have remained faithful, while others, lacking the necessary endurance, have again seceded, and the Greek term here is apostatized. To all who desire to come and live under the same laws with us, he, speaking about Moses and the Pentateuch, gives a gracious welcome, holding that it is not family ties alone which constitute relationship, but agreement and principles of conduct. On the other hand, it was not his pleasure that casual visitors should be admitted into the intimacies of our daily life, end quote. Some Gentiles found themselves attracted to the theological spirituality and moral values of Judaism. Some even found themselves attracted to its ceremonial laws. Thus, we find the ancient sources indicating that Gentiles embraced Judaism at various levels. Some fully converted. Others remained on the periphery. Jewish, Greek, and Latin sources also acknowledge that entry into the covenant was accomplished for males through the rite of circumcision, the very issue that provides the backdrop to Acts 15 in the Jerusalem Council. 
If a Gentile male wanted to convert to Judaism, he underwent the procedure of circumcision as the first step in a three-step process of conversion during the first century. This process is outlined in the rabbinic work, the Mechilta Rabbi Ishmael, quote, the proselyte enters into the covenant in three ways, by circumcision, immersion, and sacrifice. Thus, whenever the question of circumcision arises within the New Testament, it always refers to the act of Gentile conversion to Judaism. A Gentile who converted to Judaism obtained all the rights and privileges of being Jewish, like offering sacrifices in the temple or eating the Passover meal. They also found themselves with all the responsibilities of being Jewish as well, like observing the Torah, following Jewish dietary restrictions, Sabbath observance, etc. Notice the statement in Acts 15 that the Gentiles needed to be circumcised and to keep the law of Moses. Why? Because as a convert, they now were considered Jews. This created a burden sometimes too heavy to bear for some Gentile converts, which is why Josephus mentions that, quote, while others lacking the necessary endurance have again seceded, they fell away. Within the first century, the Jewish community and those surrounding it consisted of those born to Jewish parents. In that case, a boy was circumcised on the eighth day after his birth, like we read about John the Baptist and Jesus, and also proselytes, the Gentile converts to Judaism. Both groups were identified as Jews with all the rights, privileges, and responsibilities incumbent upon Jews as outlined in God's covenant with Israel, the Torah. A third group found themselves on the periphery of the Jewish community in the synagogue. These were Gentiles who had accepted the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at some level. Perhaps they had been attracted to the moral laws of Israel's God, but they had not undergone conversion. They were not proselytes. They were sympathizers usually referred to as God-fearers or God-worshippers within the ancient sources. They were not Jews. They remained Gentiles. So, while they might attend gatherings in the synagogues and be on the periphery of the Jewish community, they always remained outsiders. These God-fearers may adopt certain Jewish practices, but they were not obligated to obey the Torah, the Law of Moses. Now, this brings up a point taken for granted by Jews, but often unknown and not understood by non-Jews. Within Judaism, the Torah was not given to the Gentiles. Gentiles are not expected to follow the Torah or adhere to its commandments. Why? Because the nations of the world did not receive the Torah at Sinai. Israel did. The Torah, the law of Moses, is the code of the covenant between God and Israel. It actualizes his relationship to them and identifies them as his chosen people. It does not belong to Gentiles, nor are they obligated to its stipulations and commandments. Ask any Gentile who has lived around a Jewish community, and they can educate you on the concept of the Shabbos Goy, the Gentile for Shabbat. A Gentile can do things for his or her Jewish neighbors on the Sabbath that they cannot do for themselves because they are observing Shabbat. 
I functioned in that role not a few times during my years of living in Israel. So Jews, native-born and proselytes, must keep the Torah. Non-Jews, Gentile God-fears, do not. Within the ancient sources, we hear of Gentile God-fears adopting certain Jewish practices, yet they remained on the periphery. They did not belong to the Jewish community, but they no longer fit within the idolatrous world of the non-Jews. Caught between two worlds, they often found themselves pulled into converting to Judaism. The Latin satirist Juvenal, who was very hostile to Judaism, relates the pull upon the God-fears to convert. Quote, Some who have had a father who reveres the Sabbath worship nothing but the clouds and the divinity of the heavens and see no difference between eating swine's flesh from which their father abstained and that of a man. And in time they take to circumcision. Having been wont to flout the laws of Rome, they learn and practice and revere the Jewish law. And all that Moses handed down in his secret tome, forbidding to point out the way to any not worshiping the same rites and conducting none but the circumcised to the desired fountain. For all which, like the father was to blame, who gave up every seventh day to idleness, keeping it apart from all the concerns of life. So too, a passage from the Jerusalem Talmud reflects the social and religious pull felt by God-fears to convert to Judaism in order to fit and belong within the Jewish community. Quote, There are some things that indicate that Antonius was converted and vice versa. He was seen going out on the Day of Atonement wearing a broken sandal. This is indicative of him as a God-fearer practicing Jewish practices on the Day of Atonement. What can you deduce from that? Even fears of heaven go out wearing such a sandal. Antonius asked Rabbi, Will you let me eat of Leviathan in the next world, meaning the the messianic redemptive banquet? He answered, Yes. But he, Antonius, objected. You will not let me eat of the Passover lamb. How then will you let me eat of Leviathan? He replied, What can I do? Since it is written, No one that is uncircumcised may eat thereof, talking about the Passover lamb. When he heard this, he went out and circumcised himself. This story not only shows the pull upon the God-fear to convert because they were outside of the Jewish community, but it also witnesses to a debate within ancient Judaism whether or not non-Jews can have a share within the world to come. Rabbi's opinion in the story of Antonius indicates that he believed God-fears would have a share in the world to come. A debate that appears between two early 2nd century A.D. sages highlights this difference of opinion. Quote, Rabbi Eliezer says, All Gentiles are excluded from a share in the world to come. Said Rabbi Joshua to him, But there are righteous people among all the nations who do have a share in the world to come. Two different opinions. Rabbi Eliezer did not allow for Gentile God-fears. If they wanted a share in the world to come, they had to convert, meaning if they were a man, they had to be circumcised. Rabbi Joshua disagreed and permitted God-fears to have a share in the world to come. The Jewish historian Josephus attests that this debate existed within Judaism in the first century. He relates the story of the conversion of the royal house of Adiabene, 
which was located in northern Mesopotamia. The king Izates learned that his wives and mother had become God-fears under the influence of a Jewish merchant named Ananias. Izates became zealous to convert to Judaism. He felt he would not truly be Jewish unless he was circumcised, so he purposed to be circumcised. His mother and Ananias cautioned him against being circumcised. Ananias told Izates that he could, quote, worship God even without being circumcised if indeed he had fully decided to be a devoted adherent to Judaism, for it was this that counted more than circumcision, end quote. In other words, obedience mattered more than circumcision. Izates could remain a God-fearer and be right before God. By the way, this was the position that Paul articulated in Romans 2 and 1 Corinthians 7. Izates, however, was not entirely satisfied with this answer, but he went along with it for a time. Sometime later, another Jew, Eliezer, who came from Galilee and was known for being very strict with regard to the ancestral laws, came before Izates and found him reading the law of Moses. Eliezer chastised Izates for not being circumcised, telling him that it was required. Upon hearing this, Izates went out and was circumcised. Two different opinions as to how to handle Gentiles. Ananias believed that Izates could remain God-fear. Eliezer demanded, however, his conversion by circumcision. Thus, the Gentile question existed within Judaism in the first century. It entered Jesus' movement because they were Jews. And, like we find in the Jewish sources, a difference of opinion existed among Jesus' followers. Some said Gentiles must be circumcised and obey the law of Moses. Others, like Paul and Barnabas, believed that Gentiles could remain as God-fearers without the obligation of conversion and all that it entailed. And this provides the setting for Acts 15. Do we require Gentiles to convert to Judaism or do we allow them to remain as God-fears? And if we do not require them to convert, what are the obligations that must be established in order for Gentiles to have fellowship with Torah-observant Jews and for them to be saved together with the Jews whose covenant obligation required them to obey the entire law? If you're enjoying the Windows into the Bible podcast, I want to tell you quickly about another great and affordable resource that we offer to help deepen your study and understanding of the Bible. The Windows into the Bible book club and Bible study is a virtual on-demand book club and Bible study like no other. Each month, the book club and Bible study reads a book chosen specifically to enhance your understanding of the world of the Bible. And that book is paired with a digital Bible study. It's all recorded and saved so that you can make progress no matter when you begin. For just $10 a month, every member of the book club and Bible study receives a Bible study, notes and videos delivered to your inbox three times a week a members-only Facebook group for discussion and more resources, two live virtual discussions with the book club each month led by that month's expert 
or author. All materials are available on demand so you can read and learn at your own pace. This is just the low stress, no fuss Bible study and book club that you've been looking for. It's designed to deepen your study and understanding of the Bible for just $10 a month. Go to WITBUniversity.com to join today. That's WITBUniversity.com. See you there. The decision of this meeting of the Jerusalem elders produced what has been termed the apostolic decree. In Acts 15, this decree is stated twice. Before we address the decree itself, we need to ascertain the actual version of the decree. A number of scholars have recognized that what is known as the Western text tradition, that means the manuscript tradition of the Book of Acts, of which Codex Bizet is the most important representative, preserves the more original version of the apostolic decree. The Western text of Acts 15, 28 to 29 reads, quote, For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from meat sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from fornication, and whatever you do not want others to do to you, you should not do to others. Blood here does not refer to a dietary prescription, for example, eating blood. Rather, it refers to the shedding of blood. In Hebrew, the shvichat dam, which means murder. Also, the Western text of Acts, both in 1520 and in verse 29, add the negative form of the golden rule to the decree. The mention of strangled meat found in many of the manuscripts of Acts does not appear in the Western text tradition, and it most likely did not appear in the original decree. Just a quick comment to understand what is meant by strangled meat. This refers to meat from animals not slaughtered by pouring out their blood in conformity with biblical and Jewish practice. The addition of strangled meat in the Eastern text tradition of Acts does not represent a scribal error or addition in the manuscripts. Rather, it represents the severity in the food laws of Eastern churches, which avoided eating blood. Eastern Christians attached important to dietary laws, as can be seen in the writings of the Eastern Church Fathers. So, too, this may explain, at least in part, why some Eastern Christians eventually accepted Islam, which had a similar set of dietary laws. It seems likely that the addition of strangled meat to the apostolic decree happened among certain Christian communities shortly after the Jerusalem Council within the first century. But as we said, the three stipulations, avoiding meat sacrifice to idols, what verse 20 of Acts 15 says is the pollution of idols, sexual immorality, and murder probably contain the original list. Scholars have noted the similarity of this list with the list of three cardinal sins within Judaism. These three sins were articulated by a rabbinic synod held in Lydda, what's modern-day Lod in Israel, in AD 120. The sages gathered in the upper chambers of the house of Nitzah and determined, quote, 
that in every other law of the Torah, if a man is commanded, transgress, and you will not suffer death, he may transgress and not suffer death, except idolatry, sexual immorality, and bloodshed. These three sins are the three sins that Jews cannot commit under any circumstances. They offer an ethical foundation of the essence of Judaism. Now, ancient Judaism had the tendency to summarize the essence of one's religion in formulations, which could be called a credo, a confession of faith, a statement of principles. These were not dogmatic statements about the contents of faith. In fact, as my friend Mark Nanos has observed, the central dogma of Judaism appears in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, which form the center of Paul's theology as well. Note, these statements of principles articulated the essence of the Jewish ethic, which manifested itself in the performance of individual commandments. The universal nature of Jewish morality often attracted non-Jews to Judaism in the ancient world, whether as God-fears or even as converts. Certain streams of Judaism displayed a humanism that often expressed itself in universal ethics and wisdom. We see this, for example, in the sayings of the Jewish sage Hillel, who lived in the first century BC and subsequently those of his followers. Within ancient Judaism, many held that the Ten Commandments offer the clearest expression of the religion of Israel, with preference often given to the second half of the Decalogue. Because the second half of the Ten Commandments pertain to relations between people, many saw Leviticus 19.18, quote, And you will love your neighbor who is like yourself as a summary of the second half of these commandments. Of course, the principal restatement of Leviticus 19.18 within ancient Judaism appears in the Golden Rule, as seen particularly in the Gospels and Rabbinic sources. This can also be seen in the work known as the Didache, which states, quote, This now is the way of life. First, you will love God who created you, and second, you will love your neighbor as yourself. Moreover, anything that you do not want to happen to you, you should not do to another. As we mentioned, the Western text tradition of Acts in 1520 and 29 placed the negative form of the golden rule with the moral ethic of the three-part list. The Western text of the apostolic decree belongs to these moral formulations within Judaism that provided a moral ethic and summary of the essence of Judaism. Two of the three sins mentioned, bloodshed and fornication, appear in the second half of the Ten Commandments. The sin of idolatry is mentioned in the first half of the Decalogue, and the golden rule fits within the genre of a moral summation of Judaism tied to the Ten Commandments. Within the Old Testament Hebrew Bible, a connection often exists between idolatry and sexual immorality. One sees this, for example, in Numbers 25, where the Israelites ally themselves with the Moabites, a story that we discussed in our episode on Balaam. The prophets compared Israel's going after other deities to playing the harlot, and this connection between idolatry and sexual immorality continued in the thought of ancient Judaism. 
The three sins outlined by the Synod of Lydda defines the three sins that Jews cannot commit under any circumstances. They also form the three central prohibitions identified as the Noahide commandments. These were prohibitions that Judaism saw as incumbent upon non-Jews if they wanted to obey the God of Israel. In later traditions, the three prohibitions were expanded to as many as seven, but these three, idolatry, sexual immorality, and murder, form the original three. As such, they provided a commonality for non-Jews who wanted to participate in the salvation of Israel in which they were equally obligated to adhere to the avoidance of these three sins. This offered a basis for which Jews and non-Jews could associate together in community. Avoidance of idols and idolatry was axiomatic within Judaism for Jews. At the same time, non-Jews who wanted to be included in Israel's redemption had to reject idolatry as well. The sages stated that, quote, Whoever professes idolatry denies the Ten Commandments, the commandments of Moses, and those of the prophets. Whoever denies idolatry professes all of the Torah. For the followers of Jesus in Acts 15, rejection of idolatry for non-Jews was obvious. Gentiles could not worship idols or participate in idolatry and have any part in Jesus' community or hope for redemption. For this reason, that the rejection of idolatry was obvious for the apostles. Acts 15, 20 and 29 do not specify idolatry. Rather, Acts 15, 20 mentions the pollution of idols, which rabbinic Judaism viewed as transmitting impurity and pollution like a woman during her menstrual period. The prohibition of food offered to idols that we hear about in Acts 15, 29 also reflects contemporary Jewish questions and debates about Gentile meat, which typically had a connection to idol cults. This issue was not as obvious for non-Jews, but both Paul and John in Revelation addressed this issue that continued to pose problems for the non-Jewish believing communities. What often gets missed in the modern readings of the Apostolic Decree in Acts 15 is that these prohibitions struck at the cultural heart of the non-Jewish world. Travel with me to Pompeii and you will see a temple in the middle of the fish market. Why? Because the selling and the consumption of meat went beyond a commercial interaction and food consumption. It was connected to pagan cults. Stay with me as we travel through Pompeii. While many tourists blush and giggle in the first century brothel of the city, which got around language barriers among sailors coming to the port by simply depicting sexual acts in pictures for the desiring client to point at. It's the artwork found in the houses, the phalluses over doors and within the homes as signs of good luck and power, the statues depicting sexual acts that speak to the sexual culture of the Roman world. Journey with me through modern Turkey, Greece, Italy, and Syria, and you will be immediately struck by the number of temples dedicated to various gods and goddesses of the Greco-Roman pantheon. And let's not forget the blood sport of the Roman world, entertainment built on bloodshed. The apostolic decree was both thoroughly Jewish as well as confronting the heart of non-Jewish society. If non-Jews wanted to have a share in God's redemption of Israel, to participate within the Jewish community and its redemptive promises, then they had to adhere to these prohibitions. 
But we cannot forget that at the heart of the proclamation of Jesus's movement was the conviction that God was fulfilling his redemptive promises to Israel's fathers through Jesus. God's redemption had dawned. As such, we should wonder whether the apostolic decree served merely as a common foundation for the Jewish and non-Jewish followers of Jesus, a set of prohibitions that served as the entry obligation for non-Jews into this community, or did it connect in some manner to their belief of being in the period of God's redemption? Jewish tradition connected the universal appearance of God's kingdom and reign to the uprooting of idolatry. Quote, when will the name of these people, the Amalekites, perish? In the hour when idolatry is uprooted together with the idolaters and the omnipresent will be unique, meaning he will be worshipped exclusively, in the world and his kingdom will be established forever and ever in that hour. Quote, the Lord will go out and wage war, quoting Zechariah 14. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And on that day, the Lord will be one and his name will be one. And that's also from Zechariah 14. The removal of idolatry and idolaters with the God of Israel being worshipped in the world brings his kingdom. The book of Jubilees written in the early 2nd century BC attributed these three sins of idolatry, sexual immorality, and murder as the cause of the flood. These sins brought universal destruction. Implicit within this statement lies the assumption that the avoidance of these would not have brought destruction. Rabbi Yochanan ben Torta ascribed the destruction of the first temple built by Solomon to, quote, idolatry, licentiousness, and bloodshed. Again, the assumption being that if those behaviors were not practiced, judgment and destruction would not have come. Another rabbinic statement notes, quote, Exile comes upon the world because of idolatry, sexual immorality, bloodshed, and the neglect of the year of release. Within ancient Judaism, sabbatical years, of which the year of release was part, and jubilees often provided a chronological framework for ideas and hopes of redemption. The ascription of exile as a result of our three prohibitions with the neglect of the year of release carries the assumption that avoiding those actions and observing the year of release will in fact bring redemption. While no text specifically states that adherence to the three prohibitions of the Noahide commandments would bring redemption, a consistent assumption underlies these passages and others that destruction and exile come from disobeying them, which begs the question, what would happen if they were adhered to? It seems clear from Paul's argument in Romans that he saw that non-Jews living in accordance with the moral ethics of Judaism would have an impact on Jews, leading them to turn to faith and ultimately affect the redemption of Israel. Thus, it seems probable that the apostles in Acts 15 saw the apostolic decree as providing a common point of interaction between Jews and non-Jews, as well as enabling the repentance of the non-Jews, which is their adherence to the prohibitions to play a role in God's ultimate redemption. It's interesting to note that the three prohibitions of the Lydus Synod are identical to the three capital sins identified in patristic literature. In other words, as Christianity in the 2nd, 
third, and fourth centuries continued to confront the realities of a pagan world, these prohibitions continued to define utter commitment to the faith. It separated the followers of Jesus, like the Jews, from the pagan world around them. And it reflects the reality that the followers of Jesus originally belonged to the faith of Jesus. So what's the relevance for the modern reader of the New Testament? First, it helps us to understand the historical and religious background of the Apostolic Decree and Acts 15, which forms one of the most important chapters within the New Testament. Second, it highlights that the issues facing the Jesus movement were sociological, meaning the integration of non-Jews into the Jewish faith of Jesus and not theological, as has often been assumed within the history of the church, particularly since the Protestant Reformation. Third, it can actually provide a paradigm for modern questions of dealing with social and cultural issues that confront modern readers of the Bible. When we enter the world of the Bible, we can understand its words better. And when we do that, we can better answer what they mean for us today. I'm Mark Turnage, and this is the Windows into the Bible podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the WITB podcast. You can comment and send us questions, which we will answer on a future episode. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at Mark Turnage. See you next time. We hope you're enjoying the Windows into the Bible podcast. If you are, help us out by rating, reviewing, and subscribing to the show. This helps the show get seen and heard by even more people looking to learn about the world of the Bible. And by subscribing, you make sure new episodes to the podcast show up in your feed as soon as they go live. Give us a rating, a review, and subscribe. And most of all, keep listening. Mark. One of the reasons I wanted to start the Windows into the Bible podcast was to show how, by accessing the world of the Bible, we can better understand the words of the Bible. This philosophy has been at the core of my entire career because I know from firsthand experience how knowing the world of the Bible completely transforms your understanding and study of the Bible. But nothing, not even a podcast, transforms how you read the Bible like actually going to the land of the Bible in person to experience it for yourself. Offering the finest on-site expert-led trips and experiences to the world of the Bible, Biblical Expeditions has taken thousands of Bible readers and travelers from around the world to the lands of the Bible with trips to Israel, Turkey, Greece, Jordan, Italy, and Egypt. If you are a church leader and are interested in organizing a trip for your church or interested in joining a group to the lands of the Bible, reach out and the Biblical Expeditions team can make that happen. Go to biblical-expeditions.com 
to learn more about biblical expeditions and upcoming trips and learn how you can finally transform your study of the Bible by actually going to the land of the Bible on a life-changing trip. That's biblical-expeditions.com. We use the world of the Bible to transform how you read the words of the Bible. been listening to the Windows into the Bible podcast with Mark Turnage. If you have questions related to this episode, tweet them to us using the hashtag WITBQuestions or email them to questions at WITBpodcast.com. You can also find resources related to this and other episodes at WITBpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>